Welcome to the final session of the 2020 WSC Spotlight. Early identification and appropriate clinical management of sepsis saves lives and prevents AMR. This session is chaired by Ron Daniels from the UK and starts with a keynote by Conrad Reinhardt, President of the Global Sepsis Alliance. As always, please use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker and head over to YouTube should you wish to see the presentations of the speakers. Ron, take it away. And welcome to session six of the World Sepsis Congress, which is around the early identification and clinical management of sepsis and the fact that not only does this save lives, but also that it present, prevents AMR, or antimicrobial resistance. Now, I think some people have been asking, and it's important for me to reinforce, all of these sessions are being recorded right now. And they're going to be released beginning with the opening session on the 15th of September at regular intervals up until the end of October. So if you haven't caught a particular session or you want to review a particular session, just keep an eye out on the World Sepsis Day, World Sepsis Congress Spotlight website, and those sessions will be released there. So I'm delighted to announce first off, and, and really this gentleman needs little introduction, uh, Professor Conrad Reinhardt. Um, and I think the, the first really sentence of his biography encapsulates everything. Conrad is, of course, recognized as an international champion of sepsis. I've worked with Comrade for many years in his capacity now as president of the Global Sepsis Alliance, the founder of the Global Sepsis Alliance, and I've worked with Comrade in bringing World Sepsis Day together, which was his concept, together with the WHO resolution on sepsis. So um, I'm not going to introduce Comrade anymore. I'm just going to allow him to give us the keynote talk, which is around bringing the fight against sepsis to the next level. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's a great pleasure to talk to you. And uh, you may ask the question, why do we need to bring the fight against uh, sepsis uh, on another level? And sepsis probably is the number one cause of preventable deaths. But the majority of policymakers, citizens, etc., don't know much about sepsis in contrast to COVID-19, in contrast to AMR. But there were other times uh, in the beginning of the first 20th 20, 20 century where people like Sir William Osler mentioned that the humanity has three great enemies, fever, famine, and war. And by far the most terrible is fever. And I will come back to this in a minute to tell you that this is same is true even today. What he already also realized at this time was that except on a few occasions, the patient seems to die from the body's response to infection rather than from it. And this is indeed the definition of sepsis. And even 400 years before Jesus Christ, Hippocrates, the Greek physician and philosopher, described a condition which he called sepsis which he characterized as a process by which flesh rots. And this was even before the pandemics were described in history. And, but the notion of the mankind that infectious diseases and pandemics were accompanying, accompanying mankind as long as mankind is exists 
has shaped this notion that uh, of the threat of from infectious diseases. And still, during World War II, sepsis was recognized by, in this case, the Department of Health from the United Kingdom that has septicemia would might be Hitler's greatest ally, and they warned their soldiers about sepsis, which uses splits methods, knowing that if you get sepsis, you may die very rapidly. And they asked their soldiers to wear themselves, to be careful, because otherwise, if they would neglect it, they would help Hitler. But things change. And, and during the first half of the 20th century, there was a tremendous decrease in the crude mortality rate from infectious diseases, at least in developed countries like the United States. You see at the beginning, there were 800 to 100,000 population deaths from infectious diseases. And there was a linear decrease only interrupted by the so-called Spanish uh, flu. But otherwise, by good science development of vaccines, but even more by chlorination of water, by better sanitation, by, by the development of, uh, of antimicrobials like penicillins and, and, and others. You see that until 1950, 60, this rate and incidence decreased uh, almost to around 50 to 60 deaths per 100 population. Of course, this happened only in very developed countries. However, the bad news is that as a result of this, some people, including surgeon generals in the US, had the notion that now the book of infectious diseases could be ultimately be closed. And even for the US, this was a misconception because in 2017, 83 by 100,000 inhabitants in the US died from sepsis globally. And this is from uh, Christina Rutt's Lancet paper, 150 per 100, 100,000 inhabitants died from sepsis. And uh, even more so in some countries, this number is 10 times higher. And if you look on these slides, which compares deaths from infectious diseases, sepsis, including HIV and COVID-19, to deaths from hunger, from starving, and war, and even cancer, you see that sepsis still is a major killer and probably the major killer. It represents 20% of all annual deaths worldwide and up to, in some countries, up to 65% of all uh, deaths. And this marginalization of infectious diseases, which took place under the notion that the fight against infectious diseases has been won, was detrimental. Because when I started as a young physician in the ICU in the 70s in Berlin, I, it was clear to everybody 
that sepsis already at this time was the number one cause of death on the ICUs. However, I had learned nothing in the medicine school on sepsis. There were no educational efforts, no clinical practice guidelines, no data, no advocacy, and no funding for research. And not surprisingly, when we did a ball with a surviving sepsis campaign in several countries in 2003, less than 20% in most countries have heard the term sepsis, not talking about that they would have understood this. And this is, this is, was also the case when we launched the World Sepsis Declaration in 2012 to promote awareness on the level of institutions like WHO, where you did not find much on sepsis on the website except for maternal sepsis and neonatal sepsis. The same was true also for any centers of disease control, be it US or in other countries. Sepsis was not represented in the global burden of disease report, just except for, for neonatal sepsis. And there were only a few national sepsis initiatives around and there were no uh, sepsis alliances at all. And thanks to the fact that relatives and survivors of sepsis were no longer willing to accept poor sepsis care. And this started with the Sepsis Alliance in the US. The, at least in some countries, like the US, like in the state of New York, and overall in, 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 in the US, there was an increased awareness. CDC changed its policy. The Department of Health changed the policy. And according to this, Last report by the New York State Health Department on the impact of the so-called Rolestanton resolution on patient outcomes, you see that over time, the introduction of mandatory regulation, which uh, forced the hospitals to document what they are doing uh, when a patient comes to an emergency department in terms of diagnosis and therapy. This has resulted in a decrease of sepsis mortality in adults by more than 8% absolute. Likewise, a similar initiative for Ireland, which was triggered by the unnecessary death of a pregnant woman, resulted by educating healthcare workers in the hospitals and physicians in better recognizing and earlier treating uh, sepsis resulted in a decrease of sepsis mortality in the hospital there from the range of 30% down to below 20%. And likewise, our chair did a great job jointly with the UK Sepsis Trust and the NIH, which bought in to this uh, fight uh, in around 2015 by these great activities over there. And what they achieved that the number of patients who were screened for sepsis and treated with antimicrobials in the first hour increased over a two-year period from 30% to up to 80 to 90%. And as, as you can depict from this dotted line, mortality rate 
also decreased significantly there. So there are great differences in sepsis mortality by country and also great differences in how mortality rate decreased over time. So Australia is doing very good and with an overall hospital mortality rate for severe sepsis of below 20%. U.S. have decreased the mortality rate in the range of 30%. United, United Kingdom also decreased its mortality rate. We are not doing very good in Germany, as you see, although we have more ICU beds than any other country in the world, including the United States, which tells you that it's not only about resources, but also it's about many other issues like uh, patient safety attitudes, quality attitudes, and also vaccination rates, for etc. And of course, as we heard before, countries like Brazil or Turkey and many more, they have also problems with access to resources. And it was a great step forward that in 2017, this resolution was adopted by the WHO, improving the prevention, diagnosis, and clinical management of sepsis. And perhaps the most important request was that this resolution urges member states to include prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of sepsis in national health system strengthening in the community and in healthcare settings. And likewise, this resolution acknowledges that not only bacteria, but also fungi and especially viruses like the coronavirus make may cause sepsis. And Sir Liam Donaldson made a great comment on the occasion of the adoption of this resolution by saying that the public and the political space is a space where sepsis needs to be in order to change things. And I can only say how 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 important it is. Uh, how important this this is, and it's great that on World Sepsis Day in 2019, Australia, France, and Sweden announced national nationwide sepsis activities. And this added to other countries who have such activities decided or decided up such activities in the already in the years before. But if you look at this number and compare it to the overall member states of the United Nations, you see uh, that it, this is less than 10%. And this tells us that we have a long way to achieve this goal and to reduce the number of preventable deaths from sepsis. And if we want to do so, so we need to learn from countries and health systems with low sepsis mortalities. And they have high priority on patient safety and quality improvement. They have effective programs on infection prevention, control, and wash. They train systematically, like UK, Australia, and others, the healthcare workers in early detection of deteriorating patients. And they also educate uh, the lay people uh, by public campaigns.
And I mentioned already so that everybody now knows on COVID-19 or knows on HIV and we can learn from these great campaigns and especially in the country, in those countries where the policy makers did the right decisions and supported health systems to protect and prevent the spread of this virus. But we need to learn for overall infections to better prevent them, to earlier recognize them, and to foster the development of effective antimicrobials against all pathogens, including viruses. And we need and provide access and encourage use of available vaccines on a global scale. And if in countries, again, for, for example, in Germany, the vaccination rates against pneumococca or influenza are less than 30% or only in this range. We need to provide access to critical care in every country around the globe. And the majority of mankind has no access to adequate critical care service right now. We need to guarantee access to sensitive and specific microbiological testing to identify and differentiate viral versus bacterial infection 24 hours and this is even no, not every day, and this is even not the case in high-income countries. And we also need to support the development and evaluation of novel immunomodality therapeutic approaches because COVID-19 has demonstrated with dexamethasones and probably also by other approaches to address the immune response that we can make a difference. I am pretty sure that this will be the case of also for sepsis from other reasons. So to bring the fight against sepsis to the next level requires foremost to ensure the enactment of the WHO sepsis resolution. To respond to sepsis with the same vigor and passion as to COVID-19 and to learn from countries and health systems and facilities with low sepsis mortality rates. However, we won't be successful and we won't get there as long as top-level policymakers in every country recognize the true burden of sepsis. We also must ask WHO to increase their resources in personal aspects and also in finances and the countries to support WHO to be able to do it. We need the support by the United Nations, by UNICEF, in the same way as these international organizations support the vaccination campaigns, support the fight against AMR. We need the global fund. We need big funding organizations like Gates Foundation, Welcome Trust, and many more to get there. And we, if we are successful with this, we will be able to save millions of lives annually and make make major contributions to the achievement of the SDGs. I thank you for your kind attention and encourage you to join this fight and share our vision, a world free of sepsis and without preventable deaths from sepsis. Thank you very much. Comrade, thank you very much. That was fantastic food for thought. Um, 
very, very interesting, particularly the connection between sepsis and, and COVID-19. And, and I think we're also mindful of the WHO press release around their call to action around sepsis that was released today. Um, there was a lot of very supportive uh, comment, and uh, I think people very much enjoyed the talk um, within the chat. There were only really two questions, and they were very related to each other, and I'd value your thoughts. I think we all have thoughts on this. Um, they are connected questions. The first was, what is the pathophysiology of sepsis in the case of viruses? And the, the second really added to that in the, in the case of, you know, should we be considering early antivirals rather than early antibiotics when we suspect sepsis as a constant consequence of a viral pathogen? I think uh, both are good questions. Uh, of course, uh, we should uh, deliver, and this was a discussion what, which had been before, when we suspect uh, COVID-19, give the antivirals which we think might help in the early stages. And uh, it's also for sure that, and this is a recommendation, when we have severe COVID-19 where and uh, signs of severe sepsis or sepsis with organ dysfunction, we, of course, as long as we can't rule out bacterial infections, so should also administer anti, anti, antibiotics. On the, other, on the other question, what is the difference? So there are some differences, and there's a lot of talk about a cytokine cytokine storm and of course there, there's proof now that there is an increase in cytokines no question about this but it's not perhaps not as high as what you see in meningitis or perhaps in in other bacteria sepsis but it is there but there are other differences there is for example induction of the immune system the the innate uh, moon response and there's data that demonstrate that 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 it that's for example complement factor C5A is very much elevated and there may be a treatments in this direction so there are some differences but overall the host response is not that different. Thank you very much, comrade. And and a question from me really and and this is based partly on observations here in the UK and talking to some other colleagues from other countries. But um, you talked a lot about public and political and policymaker awareness of sepsis. And I agree, we've made huge inroads in many countries and we're making progress, including in Life Saved. How much harder do you think we're going to have to fight in the coming years in the post-COVID-19 era? Um, my perception is there's both an opportunity here with the focus on infectious disease, but also a challenge with the perspective being that COVID-19 and pandemics are more important than other non-contagious infectious disease. I, I think if you look at the numbers, and that was the intention of my talks, that policymakers should be just give justice, they should have coherent policy, should address common sepsis with the same vigor and passion what they did in most countries excellently in the fight against COVID-19. And there is the relationship there. But overall, the bang for the buck is much greater 
uh, if we would focus uh, more and learn what we learned now from COVID-19 and apply it also uh, to, to other infections. And it's not only about the policymakers. So Sir Lim, Liam Donaldson has said this morning very correctly that many good people work in bad environments and bad hospitals who have no culture. And so we need also to think on the facility level. We need to empower patients more uh, to, to ask, uh, could it be sepsis, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you very much, comrade. I, I, that was hugely helpful. Um, I think we, we now should begin to move on to the next session within, uh, or the next presentation within this session. And I think you've really opened up and, and huge food for thought there, as we said. Obviously, sepsis, as well as COVID-19, can affect people of any age. And it's really important that we include uh, children, we include women who are pregnant or post-pregnancy in all of these discussions, as well as other risk groups. So to talk to us about the management and treatment of possible uh, serious bacterial infection in infants, particularly focused on resource-limited session uh, settings, is Dr. Shali Awasti. Um, and Dr. Shali is Professor and Head of the Department of Pediatrics at King George's Medical University in Lucknow, India. She is an indefatigable researcher with more than 200 research papers published, including randomized trials in more than a million children. So it's difficult to think of anyone with greater authority to talk to us about this issue. Uh, Dr. Shali Awasti, please. Thank you very much, John. I would be sharing my implementation research findings on management and treatment of possible serious bacterial infection in young infants in India. This study has been funded by the World Health Organization and five sites were funded, one of which is my site. In India, we have a birth cohort of 25 million per year. And our country has been struggling tenaciously to tackle mortality and morbidity in neonates. The study here was conducted in the yellow part, which is Northern India, in one district, and that is district of Lucknow, which is the capital of Uttar Pradesh. In India, the neonatal mortality rate is 28 per 1,000 live birth, but in rural Lucknow, where this study was done, it is approximately 37. Now, as you will see in the pie chart, UNICEF has shown that one third of neonatal deaths are due to sepsis and hence possibly preventable. Um, so WHO recommends postnatal home visits by healthcare providers to facilitate identification and early recognition of danger sign so that healthcare seeking can be promoted. And the government of India launched home-based newborn care program in 2011, through the grassroots worker Asha, which is accredited social health activist, they are there's one Asha per village, and she's supposed to visit the newborns uh, six times to seven times in first 42 days of life. However, despite newborn uh, this home-based newborn care program, the neonatal mortality is still high, and one-third deaths are due to sepsis. 
Hence, there was the need of this implementation research. Now, these ASHA workers, as well as the other grassroots workers, identify serious bacterial infection by a set of signs. And these are if the child is newborn is not feeding well, has convulsions, has fast breathing, is having severe chest enjoying, is having fever or low body temperature, and moves only when stimulated or doesn't move. Besides, in the other column, there are other danger signs like fast breathing in a child between 7 to 59 days of age. Uh, then there is red or draining umbilicus, skin pustules, etc. Now, what happens is that once a healthcare worker identifies a case of PSBI, this PSBI has to be referred to a higher center for treatment. But majority of parents are not accepting referral and they want to treat the child in the village itself or very close to home. When this is the case, the health workers reclassify PSBI when family is not accepting referral into critical illness, which has signs of convulsions, no movements or not feeding at well at all, severe clinical severe infection and severe pneumonia that is fast breathing in a child between zero to six days of age. Now, after this, those who are not accepting referral, the WHO had tested and found that simplified treatment is effective. And when the child or the newborn has severe pneumonia or clinically severe infection, the child gets oral amoxicillin twice a day plus injection gentamicin once a day for seven days. Or when the child has critical infection, if the child can take drugs by mouth, oral amoxicillin, or intramuscular ampicillin twice a day, and gentamicin. Young infants who just have fast breathing and are aged between five to 59 days do not require referral, and they are given oral amoxicillin twice a day for seven days in their home settings. Now, this implementation research primary objective was to evaluate the acceptability, efficacy, scalability, of this simplified treatment to cases of PSBI. This was done in four blocks with an area of 938 square kilometers, a population of 8,585,000 8, um, 8, plus. The study population had a pregnant woman of 25,000 and registered live births for a 24,000 during the study duration from June 17 to February 19. Now, it, what we found that before we started, we had certain key elements of this implementation research. We had consultation and approval of policymakers. We upgraded the skills of healthcare workers. We did infrastructural strengthening. And throughout this implementation research, we did supportive supervision of the healthcare providers. Now, what, have, what is the results we are sharing here? If you see on the y-axis, you have the first phase, which is establishment phase. It was in three quarters. Then you have the implementation phase, and that was in four quarters. And you will see 
that visitation in the first week after birth is most important and this asha workers in the implementation phase on an average visited them approximately 70% to 74% times however with our supportive supervision and retraining during the implementation phase they visited the home about 85% or more times now what happened as a result of this as a result of this you will find again in the y axis in the implementation phase and in the uh, establishment phase the green bars show the number of live births and the blue bars show that the number of psbi identified in this community on an average there should be in our settings approximately 10% live births with psbi in the establishment phase maximum 3% of psbis were identified and in the implementation phase a maximum of 8% of psbi were identified which means that in the establishment phase there was 33% coverage and in the implementation phase there was about 88% coverage so therefore we really required this implementation research so that sepsis newborns are not left untreated in the community because the parents are not willing to take them so from here what happened after this after this we will show you the health seeking behavior we identified 1302 cases of psbi all were referred to the healthcare center but see only 7% accepted referral and 93% did not want to go to a higher center for care of their sick newborns therefore they were offered simplified treatment and among those who were offered simplified treatment only 73% accepted the rest went to private providers or even sometimes took conventional traditional treatments so we will be focusing on the 959 who accepted simplified treatment what happened to them now let us focus on this slide we will tell you what was the outcome of 959 which accepted simplified treatment please see the y axis in the y axis you will see that among the cases 1000 uh, 1302 the number of cases that were of clinically severe infection 66% critical illness 17% fast breathers who did not require referral 13% and severe pneumonia which required referral 3% however in the pie chart you will see the distribution of cases in the 959 who sought simplified treatment from us there were more cases of clinically severe infection then there were about 10% cases of critical illness 15% of fast breathing and 4% of severe pneumonia now the blue bar shows the number of cases of uh, illness and the orange shows the percent who were cured among cases of clinically severe infection with simplified treatment 94% were cured among cases who were of clinic critical illness the cure was 72% in fast breathing pneumonias which did not require referral 
the cure was 95%, and in severe pneumonia, the cure was 100%. There was very good acceptance. The injection gentamicin where required was given by the nurse in the villages or the parents brought the child to the community health center for injection. Overall, the adherence to five days of oral amoxicillin was to the tune of 80% and to five days injection of gentamicin was to the tune of 50%. Seven days acceptance uh, adherence was lower in both amoxicillin as well as gentamicin group. Now, we had a lot of challenges when we were doing the study. The grassroots workers could not carry or could not do all the recommended activities of home-based newborn care. So we had to train them, reorient them. We had to do supportive supervision and teach them how to count respiratory rate, record temperature. The nurses were hesitant to administer injection gentamicin to the infants at home for fear of adverse, infection, uh, adverse events. And what if the child died? What would be the community reaction? So the medical superintendents motivated the staff for giving injection. And then they started giving injection gentamicin. The ASHA workers, could not use digital watch and therefore we had to do simple trainings. After this we did a formative research and we found that the doctor said we could continue simplified treatment as it's really very simple. It is safe and it is, can be easily administered at the CHC and PHC and the doctors are happy to do it. Earlier when the doctor was not a pediatrician they would certainly not even touch the baby and refer the child to a pediatrician. And the nurses said that revision and identification made it simple. If you provide us medicines, they assured us the simplified treatment would be carried out in the community. So we concluded that through this implementation research, simplified treatment for cases of PSBI is feasible. And in the, pub, in the public health program in Northern India, we found good cure rates. It required system strengthening and supportive supervision. And we can save a large number of babies, newborns, with implementation of simplified treatment. Thank you very much for listening to me. And if you have any questions and clarifications, I would be able to share with you this work has been published and it is in the public domain also. Thank you so much, Dr. Shelley. And, and again, uh, lots of very positive comments in your presentation. And I think a lot we can learn, those of us in high income countries and uh, less complex healthcare environments in terms of how we can do things better. Um, there's two questions of Rosen. Um, firstly, uh, it's sometimes difficult to differentiate between the role of prematurity in death and the role of um, infection. It, it, do you have any advice or a strategy as to how you would address the difference between those two causations? Yes, uh, well, uh, prematurity itself is not a cause of death unless it's extremely premature baby. These premature infants tend to get infection more easily. They require good temperature maintenance feeding, which is not possible out of a healthcare setup. Therefore, 
we recommend that all children who are less than 1500 grams should be moved to a healthcare setup however differentiating sepsis in prematures and young infants is difficult and it would require definitely movement to a referral center and care in a referral center we would not recommend simplified treatment although among our cases also we had patients with prematurity some were treated successfully some could not be treated thank you um a guest makes the point that i made that and i i think my answer to this is yes that is there something developed countries can learn from um these less high tech simplified treatments i think we do need to look at that the the more direct question for you was that there appeared to be a, a loss of uh, 25 patients in in a couple of the groups um it it reinforced that the strategy was excellent but was there any attempt from the study team to refer the cases who weren't responding to antibiotics uh those who were not resp- responding to antibiotics see this was a implementation research we were just giving supportive supervision so our role was to motivate the frontline health workers to motivate the families to move and often times it did happen that if those uh, those who died before death they had moved to take health care from another provider sometimes they went to a government provider but a lot of times they also went to a private provider whose qualifications often times were not clearly known to us thank you very much indeed and a lot to think about within that presentation and as we've said equally to think about for those of us working in higher income countries so the third um uh, talk within this session is around the role of the pathogen in the management of sepsis and this is going to be presented by professor Adrian Adrianos Dondo who um was originally from Amsterdam uh, moved to Bangkok in 2000 and he's currently the director deputy director and head of the malaria and critical illness department at the Mahidol Oxford Tropical Medicine research unit as well as professor of tropical medicine at the university of oxford so huge interest in malaria and anti malarial drug resistance and very interested to hear your session professor dondo yeah thank you very much for that nice introduction so i've been asked to uh, talk about the question what the roles of the pathogen in the management of sepsis uh, and uh, i want to do that uh, with some tropical pathogens causing severe infection see if they're covered by the current sepsis 3 uh, definition and if the uh, surviving sepsis campaign guidelines can be directly applicable to these uh, diseases uh, it makes sense to talk about uh, tropical causes of sepsis uh, and this slide has been shown quite a few times today a lot of people live in tropical countries but also uh, the incidence of sepsis is higher in these countries uh, and a lot of the causes of of sepsis are in fact uh, tropical pathogens to name a few from that list uh, malaria typhoid fever dengue fever and tetanus so do they fulfill the sepsis 3 uh, definition which is a life threatening organ dysfunction caused by dysregulated host response to infection and we measure the uh, organ dysfunction with a uh, deterioration of the sofa score or a, a q sofa simplified score of 2 uh, and more 
Well, it has been explored whether this Q SOFA score is applicable uh, in uh, tropical and low middle income countries, uh, including tropical diseases like uh, malaria and uh, Ebola. Uh, and indeed, uh, moving away from the SIRS criteria for sepsis, the Q SOFA score very well uh, predicts uh, the chance of dying from, uh, from sepsis and uh, these uh, severe uh, infection. Again, uh, a slide uh, by uh, Christina Root from the Sailors trial. So as a prognosticator, the QSOFA fulfills uh, its role and the conceptual framework that is behind uh, the QSOFA and the definition is that um, sepsis is caused by an invasive infection, then you have this dysregulated host response ca causing organ failure. We measure it with, uh, with the scoring systems and they predict death. What I miss in that definition that it ignores a bit the direct role of the pathogen, the, the direct uh, disease uh, causing role of the pathogen. Uh, and I'll show a few examples that that is not just sort of an academic uh, interesting question, uh, but it can have direct in, uh, consequences how you manage your patient uh, with sepsis from certain causes. Um, so direct pathogenic effects from, uh, from pathogens, there are many, many examples. I list a few here. Um, Plasmodium falciparum, uh, the, the mature parasites in the red cells, cytoadhere to the endothelium of the microcirculation, cause blockage in the, in the microcirculation. Uh, it's not the dysregulated host response. You can't blame the poor host for that, but that is what causes tissue hypoperfusion. Pencytopenia in Leishmania, uh, Donovani, uh, direct pathogenic effects uh, by several viruses. Uh, dengue, for instance, uh, can invade uh, neurons. Uh, measles can do that. Uh, and exotoxins, for instance, in, uh, in tetanus. Um, so, does that change the management in certain aspects? Well, again, in severe malaria, the obstruction of the microcirculation is caused by, directly by the parasites. And some nice pictures here, an EM picture where you see uh, uh, the parasitized red cell blocking the microcirculation light microscopically. You can also see it in the back of the eye uh, macroscopically. Uh, with retinal whitening. Well, it has consequences for, for instance, fluid management. Um, if you treat severe malaria uh, according to the Survive Sepsis Campaign Guideline, which is fluid bolus therapy, uh, this has been tried in a large trial, the, the FEAST trial, many people will know that. Uh, when you give children with uh, severe uh, infection and science of, uh, of compensated shock, and the majority of those kids had uh, severe malaria, giving fluid bolus therapy, 20 mils per kilogram or 40 mils per kilogram, had a huge increase in mortality, almost 50% increase in mortality. Um, and that makes sense when you think about pathophysiology, because that hypoperfusion of the microcirculation is not uh, reversed by uh, giving fluids. 
What about uh, bacterial causes of, uh, of sepsis in, in the tropics? Well, a lot of the usual culprits uh, are there, but, but uh, a few uh, stick out that are tropical diseases, leptospirosis, dengue, orientia, tsutsukamushi, uh, streptococcus suis, uh, which comes from pigs. Uh, they don't differ that much in the general management, uh, but the empirical antibiotic treatment have to, has to be adapted for uh, some of these pathogens. Like um, uh, Burkholderia pseudomalii causes melioidosis in certain parts of, of the world. It's very prominent in Thailand, where I live and work. In the Northeast, it's 20% of all sepsis. It has diff different and antimicrobial treatments with keftacidim or uh, carbapenem and not the usual cocktail of antibiotics. Same is true in, in other rural parts uh, of Southeast Asia. This study from uh, Laos, that's uh, a big part of severe infections uh, and sepsis were caused by scriptivus, which requires doxycycline or azithromycin. And again, the beta-lectins are not uh, sufficient there. So also the bacterial causes uh, often need uh, specific attention. And if they are the main cause of sepsis in that area, it needs a change in, in antimicrobial therapy. So a bit more in general, the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, they will need specific chapters to deal with, uh, with tropical sepsis tropical pathogens causing sepsis. Uh, I haven't talked about uh, the different uh, capabilities and infrastructure in, in tropical countries, but just focusing on the pathogens, uh, aspects of, of the treatment guidelines will need uh, adaptation. Uh, and for that, we did write adapted guidelines. The book you just uh, saw uh, two years ago now already needs uh, a revision, I think. Uh, but it, it has been downloaded 80,000 times, so apparently uh, it does uh, cover a need. So in conclusion, uh, yeah, the, the pathogen causing the sepsis syndrome does matter. Um, I think in the definition, I really would like this addition that if you just say it's, it's a dysregulated host response, you ignore uh, the direct effects uh, of, of the pathogen. Uh, which can steer sometimes uh, research agendas in, in the wrong uh, direction if you only look at the immunopathogenesis. Uh, malaria is a very good example of that. Uh, the, the fluid management is clearly different there. Severe dengue is another good example where the fluid management has to be more restricted. And for bacterial causes, uh, the choice of antibiotics uh, uh, needs to be uh, carefully considered. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Dondorb. Um, we, we've we've had again a lot of positive comments. We, we've just had one question coming in, which um, it, it, uh, in your mind, does um, SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, does that carry any direct effect for mortality in terms of direct influence on cells or organs, or is this entirely the cytokine storm? Yeah, that is a difficult question, uh, of course. Uh, so the Q-sulfur score is not very good predicting mortality in COVID-19, but that doesn't answer that question. Uh, there is 
direct uh, invasion of alveol alveolar cells by uh, by the coronavirus with a direct cytopathogenic effect. And it looks like uh, the lower respiratory tract uh, virus burden uh, is related to severity of disease and triggering that very uh, severe uh, host immune response. Um, so I think uh, evidently the, the host immune response uh, is very important. That's why, why steroids work. Uh, but I think there is also a direct cytopathogenic uh, effect. Thank you. Um, I, I have just two further questions. One is quick and easy, which is, is your adaptation of the guidelines free to download? And the second, more technical, um, which is that meloidosis and typhus in Bangladesh seems to not work with existing duration of antibiotics. I assume it means people aren't getting better. We have recurrence and fatality. What is your suggestion? So firstly, can people download and where can they download the adaptations? Uh, yeah, it's freely downloadable. Uh, it's, uh, the, it's from Springer. And if you go to their website, uh, it's called uh, Management of, let me go back to that slide, uh, Sepsis Management in Resource Limited Settings. And it's uh, easy to download. The second question, uh, which, uh, which infection was, was it about again? It was around meloidosis and typhus, um, was the question, in Bangladesh. Oh, in Bangladesh. So meloidosis uh, needs very long treatment. Uh, you have an initial phase with uh, intravenous treatment with either keftazidim or uh, a carbapenem. Then you need follow-on treatment with, with oral treatment with a cocktail of uh, antibiotics uh, for several weeks. So... In, that always needs uh, a long-term treatment. Uh, typhoid fever, that depends a lot on the, on the local resistance patterns, uh, what the best drug uh, is. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of azithromycin is, is currently in, uh, in Bangladesh, uh, the treatment of choice, and it's, it needs 14-day uh, treatments. Thank you very much. I'm sure that... Um not only the evidence you've presented, but also the practical advice, particularly you've concluded with and in other areas, will be hugely valuable to many. So thank you, Professor. Um, we're, we're going to move on to the penultimate uh, talk within this session, which is around paediatric sepsis guidelines and more. And this is to be presented by Dr. Sharara Chami, who um, graduated from the American University of Beirut Medical School. She's worked in pediatrics in North Carolina at Harvard Medical School with the Boston Children's Hospital. And she's currently Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, with also a huge interest in simulation and medical education. And she's director of the simulation program where she works. So please, Dr. Sharara Chami. Thank you, Ron, and thank you for this honorable invitation to the World Sepsis Congress. I have no conflict of interest. So um, I would like to just start by showing a little bit of the difference in the definition of adult versus pediatric sepsis. As Professor Dondrop mentioned, um, adult sepsis is now defined as a life-threatening organ dysfunction that is caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. In children, we still use the classic definition of the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, or SIRS, in the presence of suspected or proven infection to define sepsis. 
SIRS in children is defined as either tachycardia or bradycardia, fever or hypothermia, tachypnea or the need for mechanical ventilation, low or high neutrophil count. Organ dysfunction in children is defined as any organ failure, so it could be cardiovascular, respiratory, neurologic, hematologic, renal, and hepatic. And septic shock in children is defined as sepsis with cardiovascular dysfunction that persists despite the administration of 40 ml per kilo of isotonic fluid in one hour. Now, the concept of sepsis as life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated response to infection has also faced validity in children. But the score and the utility of lactate still needs to be uh, put into operation and they still need to be established. So until then, we are still using the consensus criteria and we will continue to use that to define pediatric sepsis. So sepsis is a primarily a clinical diagnosis, and the clinical manifestations typically progress along a continuum of severity from sepsis to severe sepsis. So it's sepsis plus cardiac, respiratory, or dysfunction in two or more organ systems, progressing to septic shock. So again, hemodynamic instability despite initial fluid therapy and leading to multiple organ failure and eventually cell death and then organ death. So just to go over the pediatric definitions one more time in, in, um, in, in a table format. So SIRS is the presence of two or more of the following criteria uh, that I mentioned earlier. So changes in temperature, changes in heart rate, respiratory rate, and white count, all the way progressing to severe sepsis and then septic shock. Fluid refractory septic shock is whenever there's cardiovascular dysfunction that persists despite giving 60 ml per kilo of fluid resuscitation. And catecholamine resistant septic shock is when the shock persists despite treatment with either dopamine or any of the catecholamines. So just to clarify what cardiovascular dysfunction is in children, so it's the presence of either hypotension or uh, reliance on any medication to raise the blood pressure, two or more of, uh, you know, signs of inadequate tissue perfusion. So prolonged cap refill, oligoyuria, metabolic acidosis, and elevated blood lactate. So common infections in pediatrics uh, are uh, staph aureus, mostly MRSA, and coag-negative staph, especially in neonates and young infants strep pneumo, strep pyogenes, and group B strep in the neonate. In our part of the region, you know, we still see a lot of gram-negative infections, so pseudomonas, including carbapenem-resistant strains, E. coli, including ESBL, enterococcus, klebsiella, and alpha strep in, you know, cancer patients and patients with mucositis and neutropenia. In children, viral sepsis and culture-negative sepsis, so either from Toxic shock or previous treatment with antibiotics are still common, and they can definitely mimic bacterial sepsis, especially in neonates. And we can also have co-infection with the bacterial pathogen. So antibiotics should always be, you know, started until we rule out uh, the co-infection with the bacterial pathogens. Now, fungal infection, especially candida, 
have been reported in about 10% of pediatric patients with severe sepsis and septic shock, but of course, these are more common with certain risk factors like cancer and immune suppression. Parasitic infections like malaria and rickettsial infections like, for example, Rocky Mountain spotted fever may be also present depending on the region, and they, can also, they should be suspected based on local prevalence disease and travel history. So the burden of pediatric sepsis is big. Globally, we have an estimated 22 cases of childhood sepsis per 100,000 person years and more than 2,000 cases of neonatal sepsis per 100,000 live births. So this amounts to about 1.2 million cases of childhood sepsis per year. The mortality ranges, of course, uh, with geographical location between 4% and 50%, and it depends on illness severity and risk factors. And usually the mortality is secondary to refractory septic shock, and it, it manifests mostly in the second or third day of illness. Respiratory infections and bloodstream infections are still responsible for almost two-thirds of the cases of severe sepsis worldwide. And unfortunately, many of these illness, illnesses are caused by vaccine-preventable pathogens. This is a map of the child mortality, uh, so death per 1,000 1, live births, uh, and that's from 2018. And the lighter the color, the lower the mortality. And you can see that uh, the yellow stars were, uh, so in North America, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, 6 to 8% of patients are the ones treated in the PICUs, and the PICU mortality ranges from 21 to 32%. Uh, the red stars, so in South America and Asia, 15 to 16% of patients were treated in 10 PICUs, each with PICU mortality ranging from 11 to 40%. In South Africa, 25% of these patients were treated in three PICUs, and the PICU mortality is, you know, in the range of 40%. So the Surviving Sepsis Campaign uh, looked specifically at, uh, you know, for the children criteria, has uh, 77 overall recommendations, which I'm not going to go over, obviously. So I'm going to mention the most important ones and the ones, uh, the, the strong recommendations and the best practices. So most importantly, and the most important recommendation remains early recognition. And we cannot stress this enough. So early, recommend, early recognition can be facilitated via implementing guidelines or protocols. And this is important because with early recognition, we can start antimicrobial therapy early on. So in patients presenting with septic shock, the recommendation is to start antimicrobial therapy within one hour. In patients with sepsis, but with hemodynamic stability, we have up to three hours to start antibiotic therapy while cultures are obtained and fluids are being provided. So this is important because every hour of delay has been associated repeatedly and repeatedly shown with increased risk of death or increased odds ratio of death in both adults and children. The 2020 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Pediatric Guidelines uh, recommend source control, so removal of central lines or any catheters that, be, that could be contributing to the infection. Um, of course, the risks and the benefits need to be weighed and the, the stability of the patients need to be taken into consideration. Uh, the campaign in 2020 also suggested against using bedside clinical signs in isolation. 
for the purpose of hemodynamic monitoring. And instead, they recommend advanced hemodynamic variables. Of course, this depends on the region and PICU availability. So, for example, use, usage of like uh, direct measures of cardiac output, cardiac index, systemic vascular resistance, and central venous oxygenation, in addition to the physical exam. And this is in order to guide ongoing resuscitation in children with septic shock or other sepsis-associated organ dysfunction. This brings me to a very important point, and this was also brought up by Professor Dondorf, and this is fluid administration in patients with severe infections, uh, sepsis, and septic shock. So in low-resource countries where there's no PICU availability and where we cannot monitor the changes in, in physical exam based on fluid resuscitation, in case of hemodynamic stability, so blood pressure is stable, the recommendation is not to give any IV fluid boluses, but rather start maintenance fluid with no bolus. And this is, again, uh, based on the big study that was published in New England Journal in 2011 about the mortality after fluid bolus in African children with severe infections. If there is hypotension in high-resource countries or where intensive care is available, we can provide up to 60 mLs per kilo of crystalloids in the first hour. In absence of PQs, we the recommendation is not to go over 40 mLs per kilo, and this is this should be also given in aliquots while the patient is being examined for any sign of fluid overload. Crystalloids are recommended over albumin, and more recently, buffered crystalloids like lactated ringers have also uh, been shown to be superior to normal saline. Um, there's a recommendation against using starches and against using gelatin in pediatric patients. In terms of vasoactive medications, the recommendation now with the 2020 surviving sepsis uh, campaign is to actually use epinephrine and norepinephrine instead of dopamine. We used to immediately start with dopamine a few years back. In terms of ventilation, as we all know, um, as ARDS is associated with sepsis in adults, PARDS or pediatric ARDS is associated with sepsis in children. And the recommendation is not to use etomidate during intubation as this can cause adrenal insufficiency. And as we know, in sepsis, patients can have an element of adrenal insufficiency. Corticosteroids are not recommended unless it's catecholamine, refractory septic shock, or there's any evidence for uh, you know, um, adrenal insufficiency. Uh, we do not do tight glycemic control in children with sepsis, and we start enteral feeds really early on within the first 48 hours, and we avoid starting TPN until seven days uh, after the, the onset of sepsis. In terms of resuscitation with blood products, we try to keep the hemoglobin around seven if there's no sign of hemodynamic instability, and we push it to nine if the patients are hypotensive. Again, in patients with severe anemia, giving a blood transfusion was shown to be superior than giving fluid boluses. Renal replacement, or CVVH, and VV ECMO are used for patients who are refractory to fluid restriction and are not responsive to diuretics. IVIG is not recommended in sepsis. I will talk about IVIG again with COVID-19. And in children, we do not necessarily start prophylaxis for stress ulcers or deep vein thrombosis. Of course, in the times of COVID-19, 
we cannot talk about sepsis without discussing SARS-CoV-2. This is the elephant in the room. So this is the first study that was published out of China, out of Wuhan Children's Hospital. In, uh, and it looked at 182 patients under the age of 16 uh, from January 28th until February 28th who tested positive for COVID-19. In that series, the big majority of patients had very mild infections, and even 13% were asymptomatic despite having abnormal CT images. So after the, the, the start of the pandemic, Surviving Sepsis Campaign uh, updated their guidelines and issued statements specific for COVID-19. And these are 54 statements, four are best practice statements, and nine are uh, strong recommendations. So I will talk about uh, the strong recommendations. So in pediatric patients presenting to the ICU with COVID-19, we tend to have a lower threshold to give uh, oxygen via non-invasive ventilation. So we have a lower threshold to start oxygen via high-flow nasal cannula oxygen and even use uh, BiPAP for these uh, children whenever their oxygen saturation is under 90%. In children, just like any other child with hemodynamic instability and sepsis, the recommendation is not to give fluid boluses in low-resource countries, especially with COVID-19, and to have a low threshold to look at any element of cardiogenic shock. So again, the caricolamines are recommended instead of dopamine uh, in cases of hypotension, and we can even use uh, vasopressin. Uh, the, the ionodilators like milrinone, dobutamine, and levosimendin could be used if there's any sign of cardiac dysfunction that is not responsive to catecholamine. The CPR recommendations for pediatric patients with COVID-19 um, is slightly more permissive in terms of starting the CPR when the patient is still prone in case uh, the endotracheal tube is in place. Uh, if the airway is not secure, the recommendation is to turn the patient supine and then uh, start CPR. Speaking of IVIG and COVID-19, I would like to discuss next a sepsis mimicker uh, and also, a, a, you know, a shock uh, syndrome, and that is a MIS-C or multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And this is based on a paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently that looked at 186 patients under 21 years of age um, who fulfilled the criteria for MIS-C associated with SARS-CoV-2 infection. And this was across the United States. So the WHO case definition for MIS-C is that all the following six criteria have to be met. So the age needs to be less than 19 and patients need to be having fevers for more than three days. And they need to have at least two of the following, rash or conjunctivitis or any mucocutaneous involvement, hypotension or shock, cardiac dysfunction or pericarditis, valvulitis, or coronary abnormalities, and evidence of coagulopathy or acute GI symptoms. They also need to have elevated markers of inflammation, like CRP, procalcitonin, or sedrate. And no other obvious uh, microbial infections except for the exposure to SARS-CoV-2 or positive serologies or positive PCR. 
So basically, it's a syndrome that is similar to other inflammation-provoking illnesses in pediatrics like Kawasaki, toxic shock, fever with inflammation, acute abdomen, encephalitis, or myocarditis. And this is because the di diagnostic criteria are actually pretty broad. So in MIS uh, C patients, most of them end up having any, some kind of cardiovascular involvement. And uh, most of them end up having some kind of GI involvement as well, which could distinguish, distinguish them from Kawasaki patients. So in this series, again, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, most of these patients, so the majority had uh, lab uh, antecedent or concurrent SARS-CoV-2 infection, so in 70% of the cases. Most were previously healthy, did not have any documented underlying conditions, and uh, it was very common for them to have cardiovascular involvement. Most patients were in an ICU, 20% were intubated, most were uh, discharged, actually, and four patients died, two of whom had previously been completely healthy. It's important to notice that the median interval is 25 days between the onset of uh, COVID-19 symptoms and hospitalization for MIS-C. And it was noted epidemiologically that the rise and fall of COVID-19 cases precedes the rise and fall of MIS-C cases by about four weeks. The difference between Kawasaki disease and MIS-C, because they've been uh, compared to each other, is epidemiologically. So as you can see, MIS-C affects really older children. And they show specific lab findings that are different from other inflammatory disorder in children, like leukopenia and extremely high levels of BNP. In Kawasaki, patients are usually under five years of age, and uh, lab findings are not similar to uh, MIS-C. Uh, we did not see any Asian children with uh, MIS-C, and most Kawasaki patients come actually from Asia. Um, so based on this, uh, the uh, Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommends early EKG and ECHO for any child presenting with uh, MIS-C symptoms. Uh, including an abdominal ultrasound and a chest CT, and treat with antibiotic early on, even if you know that this is COVID-19-related MIS-C, just to rule out any concomitant bacterial infections, and consider IVIG and high-dose aspirin if it's Kawasaki and antiplatelet dose of aspirin if it's MIS-C. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Sharara Chami. That's, uh, that was hugely interesting. Um, Again, we, we have lots of great praise for your talk. We, we have just a couple of short questions. Um, uh, two really are related, um, which really relate to lactate and fluids. Um, so if I can paraphrase two together, lactate is prognostic and mortality driven. I'm not quite sure what that means. Is ringer's lactate likely to increase lactate? And the second is, what is the best resuscitation fluid in the treatment of sepsis? in your population uh, and it asks is this ringer's lactate or normal saline so thank you very much very good question so uh, lactate in adults has been shown to be a prognostic factor uh, so the higher the lactate the higher the mortality in children there's suggestion that lactate is also related to uh, mortality but the studies are underway and we don't have definite evidence that high lactate 
in children is related to mortality because in children lactate also rises with um, starvation and uh, you know metabolic diseases and and other etiologies. Now, in terms of fluid resuscitation, we uh, we tend to use normal saline for resuscitation, but very recently, surviving sepsis uh, campaign recommended buffered crystalloids, so like lactated ringers, which are unlikely to raise lactate in case of septic shock. So we've we've tended to use that as well. In cases of hypoalbuminemia, the recommendation is to also use albumin. Uh, but this has to be, um, you know, um, uh, combined with a measure of actual albumin uh, for the patient. Thank you very much. And in adults too. And, and I think there's opportunity to be pragmatic about this, particularly in um, less well-resourced clinical areas, that if we have saline to hand, it's appropriate to use that. We probably shouldn't use too much saline in adults, but a balanced solution is preferable if it's available. The final question was um, related to children with ARDS. And it was asking um, what's OI or oxygenation index and OSI or oxygenation saturation index were in your presentation. Um, I guess we, we need to ask whether you have an opinion uh, as to whether one's preferable to the other. So this is also a very good question. I did not go into the details of uh, oxygenation index or oxygenation saturation index because the talk was not specifically about pediatric ARDS. But um, as we know, the oxygenation index takes into consideration the, uh, the measured oxygen in the blood, so the oxygen tension in the blood, uh, 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 whereas the oxygenation saturation index could be mostly used in low resource countries because the saturation, so just the measured by the pulse ox, is also a, a correlate with uh, oxygen tension in the blood. So you, you can actually use either depending on your resources. If, you, if the patient is in an ICU and you have an arterial line, I would recommend using the oxygenation index. If not, an oxygen, ox, oxygen saturation measured by pulse ox should be fine. Thank you so very much. Um, so we need to move on now uh, to the final talk within this session, which is around the role of sepsis and AMR, antimicrobial resistance, of course, in patient safety. And uh, it's a, a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Abdullah Al-Hosawi, who's the founding director general of the Saudi Patient Safety Center, um, who do fantastic work and have become a WHO collaborating center for patient safety policy and strategy. He's a surgeon by background, um, and currently serves as a consultant to multiple quality and safety bodies. And I think, you know, what really strikes me is that he was the chair of the organizing committee for the fourth global ministerial summit on patient safety in Jeddah last year. So um, please, let's hear about sepsis and AMR and patient safety. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Daniels. Um, I'm quite aware that after a very long day, uh, I'm, I'm the uh, person standing between you and the concluding remarks of uh, Dr. Ed Kelly. So I'm going to follow the uh, three guidelines of a good speech, which is brevity, levity, and repetition. And, and basically, uh, this is more of a strategic uh, talk rather than a very technical talk. <clears throat> Over the past three, four years, uh, you know, there have been a lot of uh, progress in, in the three topics, in AMR, in uh, patient safety, and in sepsis. You know, in 2017, there was a WHA resolution uh, 
on the uh, 2019, there was, uh, sorry, the, uh, in 2017, there was a resolution in se for sepsis. In 2019, there was a resolution for patient safety. And then as you mentioned, uh, you know, a number of uh, global ministerial summits on, on patient safety. And, and, and this year, in the, in the G20, actually, we find uh, the, almost all the three topics, which is MR, uh, patient safety, and, and also we have, we have the pandemics. So the question is, uh, you know, these, uh, even though that there has been uh, um, a lot of progress in the knowledge gap, I think uh, it, is, it is safe to say that there's still uh, an uh, a gap in, in these three topics. And, and also there, there are silos that hopefully my talk is going to try to, to align and, 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 and leave you uh, thinking that uh, these are basically just different sides of the same problem. So uh, this is the outline of, of what I'm going to talk about, uh, zero harm, and then a little bit about uh, sepsis and patient safety, AMR and patient safety, uh, and then I'm going to conclude uh, with, with the message uh, that I've mentioned uh, a bit uh, early in, in, in my uh, opening remarks. So first, do no harm. This is uh, a very old uh, and, 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 and uh, alive principle in, in healthcare. And, and zero harm is our true north in healthcare, period. You know, uh, uh, patient safety, AMR, or sepsis, or any other topic. And zero harm, uh, by definition, is uh, zero harm not to patients, zero harm to health workers, and zero harm to the healthcare facility. So uh, the first message that I want to communicate is that if we agree that by definition, patient safety is the absence of harm and the true north in patient safety thinking is zero harm, uh, both sepsis and AMR are preventable harms. Uh, there are different uh, patient safety uh, problems. You know, diagnostic errors is, is one, medication errors, healthcare-associated infections, which is very relevant to both uh, AMR and, 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 and sepsis. And, uh, of course, the lack of uh, patient and family empowerment is, is a major obstacle. So one of the challenges is that we're still having the silos, as, as I mentioned. So antimicrobial stewardship is, is viewed uh, uh, separate from sepsis, and sepsis is, is viewed separate from, from patient safety, even though that, uh, you know, patient safety, uh, all these different topics are, are patient safety-related topics. So we need to reframe AMR as a patient safety issue. And we're, we're all aware that uh, the starting point is, is, is IPC. And, and again, that's another silo that we're still talking patient safety and IPC rather than actually just looking at them as, as uh, very much uh, the in interdependent and, 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 and very much covering the same, uh, you know, uh, uh, objective. So to prevent sepsis and AMR, we have to empower IPC programs in, in the healthcare facilities. So 
so so IPC uh, and and hopefully that's one of the messages I can leave you with is uh, that we should stop saying IPC and patient safety, but rather saying IPC equals patient safety or patient safety equals IPC. Because uh, to remind you again, patient safety is the absence of harm, and and one of the biggest harms that happens in in uh, healthcare facilities is healthcare associated infections. So sepsis and antimicrobial stewardship are two sides of the same coin. So if we improve uh, and and reduce sepsis, by default, that's going to contribute to improving uh, and, and reducing AMR and vice versa. If sepsis goes up, then, uh, you know, sepsis comes from infections and bacterial infections require uh, antimicrobial uh, use, and that will end up fueling the AMR uh, problem. So, so again, uh, you, 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 you need to view these two as two sides of the same coin. I'm, I'm not going to go into the numbers. Uh, I'm, I'm sure throughout the day, these number, numbers were, were well covered, but, uh, you know, sepsis kills around 11 million uh, globally. Uh, patient safety, and unfortunately, again, it's because it's viewed uh, separately. Uh, you know, the numbers are in the millions. Uh, and AMR, uh, the numbers could reach up to uh, 10 millions by the year 2050 if, if this problem is not dealt with. Uh, so the the three hour bundles, the the broad spectrum antibiotics, the the the, the timing of, of the initial IV fluid boluses are all uh, very much uh, relevant to the outcome of, of of sepsis and proactive risk management, which is one of the most important uh, things that we should have in 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 healthcare to improve patient safety, to reduce sepsis and to reduce AMR is still behind. And unfortunately, when we compare ourselves in health in the healthcare industry to high reliability uh, industries like aviation and oil and gas, I think one of the main differences is uh, whereas those industries are more proactive in their risk management, uh, we are still uh, Pretty much a reactive industry. So, so lots of uh, room for improvement when it comes to uh, risk management. And, and, and again, with, with sepsis, there is the early warning signs. But I think with technology and with AI, uh, etc., one would, would ask uh, himself or herself, is uh, our early warning signs that early? I mean, imagine if we could leverage technology and AI, we could have predictive analytics that could. Uh, predict sepsis way upstream before we get into more physiological changes. So, so again, lots of room for improvement. And, and, and uh, these are topics that were well, well covered uh, throughout the day. Uh, so what, what is, what is uh, you know, the take-home message uh, from, from my opinion? I, I think... Uh, as I mentioned, over the past uh, few years, uh, we've, we've come a long way in these three topics. So uh, it is safe to say that the knowledge gap has been uh, bridged. 
you know, uh, in, a, in a good way. We've got a number of resolutions. We've got global ministerial summits. We've got these topics covered uh, in the G20s and the G7s, and we have an AMR hub. So, so the knowledge gap is, is, is doing very well. I think that there are two remaining problems, which is the implementation gap is still uh, huge. 11 million dying from sepsis, around 10 million will end up dying from AMR if we don't do something about it. And, and uh, you know, uh, by any estimation, around 5 million uh, are dying from, from uh, preventable harm, you know, specifically uh, when, 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 when we're addressing patient safety. So we need to think how we can uh, turn that uh, you know, think strategically into into uh, more of a practical and sustainable implementation strategies. Uh, as so, as we move forward, we could we we could bring a dent to to those you know huge numbers and, and millions of people that are dying. And again, death is the ultimate harm. But for both AMR and sepsis, uh, you know, there's there there are more. Uh, Patients that are not dying, but they end up with with all kinds of uh, physical and emotional uh, harm as well. The other problem which I think we should address is the the silos. We have silos between patient safety. So there are the patient safety discussions, which is uh, independent from uh, IPC discussions, which is independent from AMR discussions, which is independent from sepsis discussions. So. I hope that my talk has kind of uh, would, 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 would make you think about these uh, topics as, as all kind of, uh, you know, patient safety related topics. So, so to summarize, uh, sepsis and AMR, both are patient safety issues and, and both are preventable. Uh, stopping sepsis by addressing AMR is, is, is very doable and, and, and strategic. Uh, we need to leverage uh, technology and real-time surveillance to help us actually leapfrog in, in this effort. Sepsis needs active surveillance and reassessment for patients who are at risk. And everyone has a role to play, and I mentioned the, the empowerment of patients and families as, as one of the key strategic uh, efforts that we need to do to improve patient safety and, and, and reduce sepsis and, and, and AMR moving forward. Imagine uh, patient and family-driven uh, early warning signs, which many hospitals are, are adopting, but, but if you leverage also uh, AI and, and, and the Internet of Things, I think we could, we could really uh, transform how we deal with, with these problems. And this is my last slide. Uh, patient safety, as I defined earlier, is the absence of harm. And infection prevention and control is the absence of healthcare-associated infections, you know, uh, which is, again, preventable harm. So, in other words, you could, it, it is safe to say that patient safety equals uh, IPC and vice versa. If we reduce healthcare-associated infections by improving the IPC practices within healthcare facilities, uh, this will result in reduction of sepsis, and it will result also in reduction of AMR, and, and, and in return, that will improve patient safety. So, uh, 
with that, I'll thank you for, for your uh, interest and I look forward to any questions. Thank you so very much. Um, and you know, brilliant to link patient safety, to acknowledge that sepsis, IPC, AMR all sit together, absolutely central to patient safety and perhaps need addressing with one voice by the public, by policymakers, by the media. And I'm, I'm going to paraphrase in this a question from Garance Upham, who attended the IPC and AMR meeting. How can we get countries, and I assume that uh, Garance means governments, to invest in patient safety with our particular interest around infections management at a global level? I think... I think uh... Uh, one of the uh, obstacles to improving patient safety is the uh, the weak uh, advocacy. So, so if you compare uh, two terms, if you're in any gathering and you ask uh, the, the how many people know uh, or heard of uh, global warming, and if you compare that to patient safety, you're going to see almost 100% of, of arms go up versus... Uh, uh, much less uh, to, to patient safety. So, so I think uh, to answer that question, uh, it, it, it takes uh, grassroots efforts. Uh, there, the WHO is, is championing uh, patients for patient safety, but I believe NGOs and, and civil societies and countries have a major role to play in addition to keeping the, 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 the conversations alive in, in uh, you know, international uh, gatherings and meetings, you know, the World Health Assembly, the uh, G20, the G7s, and, 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 and a number of multinational platforms where we need to, to, to push that forward. But I, I truly believe that whereas a, a topic like the, the global warming have made it to the mainstream discussions, uh, Thanks to you know the advocacy, I think patient safety and even AMR and, and, and sepsis these are all uh, topics that uh, did not make it to the to the to the mainstream and and, and, and there's a lot of, of efforts that for for people that care about these topics to to try to uh, push forward and, 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 and engage with with with, uh, with with the public and and, and advocate for grassroots uh, advocacy. Absolutely. And as you say, this is everybody's job uh, and it's not going to be easy. Um, so th the final question was, um, I'm going to paraphrase, this was an anonymous question. Um, and with regards to patient safety, and my bias to this question is, we all know that there are some people with sepsis who need antimicrobials very urgently. There are some in whom it's probably a little safe to wait maybe two, three hours until we have more information. How can that balance, the balance between the operational delivery of rapid antimicrobials and making that much easier to affect, and the clinical balance where we might afford the time to have more information and perhaps give targeted antimicrobials, how can that be incorporated at a national or regional level into patient safety, or should it not be? Should we just um, hit hard and then consider afterwards? I, I think I think uh, you know there's there's a saying that patient safety is is is, is local and and all these different topics are, are local. So 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 I believe this should be uh, dealt with at the uh, at the healthcare facility at the clinical unit side and and with having multi uh, disciplinary uh, committees uh, working together and 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 understanding what 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 sort of uh, 
uh, you know, microbiology profile that you're dealing with at, at that uh, specific uh, facility and, 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 and dealing with it. I think, I think sharing data uh, both nationally and regionally is, is helpful. But these life or death decisions, I believe, have to still uh, continue to be at the, at the facility level. And, and, and this is where the role of uh, those multidisciplinary committees uh, to, to make sure that uh, we maintain antimicrobial stewardship, but at the same time, we, uh, we, we, we try to help patients. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult balance that every clinician needs that he or she needs to deal with on a daily basis. Thank you so very much. And um, that really very nicely concludes this, uh, this final session, um, which, as we remember, was on the early identification and appropriate clinical management of sepsis and reminding us that this saves lives and prevents AMR, reinforcing that these two are intrinsically interlinked. So I've been uh, Ron Daniels. I'm an intensive care clinician in the UK. Thank you um, to all the contributors who made this a very enjoyable session. And thank you to those asking questions and hopefully the answers um, satisfied you. So it's my delight now to conclude to hand over to Ed Kelly or Edward Kelly from the World Health Organization, one of the safety leads, the patient safety leads within that organization to reflect and to offer conclusions. Uh, so Ed, please. Great, Ron, thank you so much. And uh, you really thanks for the ongoing work in this, in this uh, area. Um, and uh, also a pleasure to uh, listen throughout the day and also um, it's very a uh, great honor to follow my good friends, uh, uh, Abdullah, and also to um, hear his wise words. It's always um, a uh, challenge to come uh, after him. And, and I think in terms of presenting the big picture, um, uh, we have a lot of good new thinkers and Abdullah, you're really one of them. So thanks for, um, for those thoughts. I will just be very uh, brief in my um, uh, comments this evening. And before I hand over to Tex, uh, and uh, we sort of wrap things up. I mean, uh, at one level, I think it's a pity that uh, the Congress uh, spotlight is already over. Uh, the nine and a half hours have passed you know, very quickly, uh, and the number of experts that um, uh, the, the committee has brought together uh, today, it's really widened the understanding that we have of sepsis and uh, other global threats uh, also stimulated our thinking by providing new ideas and new perspectives and offered a range of solutions that uh, really need to be brought farther forward in terms of preventing and treating deaths and disabilities from sepsis, pandemics, and antimicrobial resistance. The WHO Antimicrobial Resistance um, Special Program, the division that the Director General has put forward and the Department of Integrated Health Services, which I direct, we're uh, proud to uh, co-organize the successful Congress Spotlight um, as WHO with the Global Sepsis Alliance. And today, it would be impossible, obviously, to sum these uh, up, everything that was talked about, but evidence and innovations on epidemiology and the burden of sepsis, the antimicrobial resistance, uh, latest uh, information, interlinkages, 
between sepsis, Ebola, and COVID, new approaches to prevent sepsis and AMR in a comprehensive and integrated way, something that's too often missing, something which uh, we've heard just uh, spoken about, how diagnostics and early identification and then appropriate clinical management of sepsis can save lives. And really, most importantly, knowing how sepsis appears clinically and how to fight it at all stages. This means really knowing how to manage that terrifying experience that many COVID-19 patients and their families and the huge investment and dedication needed by those attempting to save them. So all points that were brought home. As stated by um, our Director General, Dr. Tedros, uh, for the conference, the problem of sepsis really underscores the need for achieving quality care for all. It's one of our overarching goals. It was there before COVID. It will be there long after. And it's certainly present right in the middle of the outbreak. Uh, I really loved uh, Alaric Kapua's consideration today that we need to see that there's a hidden rainbow uh, behind the clouds in the storm of the COVID-19 pandemic. And actually, sort of the, the rainbow colors are the same colors as the sustainable development goals as we were observing. So these days, you know, achieving those goals means ensuring essential health services. And that's something that I'm working on personally with our team closely as part of the COVID response, keeping essential services running and running safely. So that means access to prompt and high-quality treatment, and it also means access to safe, affordable medicines and vaccines. But something people don't think often enough about, it also means providing adequate sanitation, water quality, um, and effective infection prevention and control measures, such as hand hygiene. And all of these are interlinked. Effective infection prevention in the context of COVID we have a lot more PPE out there. So how are we doing on waste management? This is something that needs to be considered. All of these agendas interlinked. I really could not agree more that we don't have a workforce agenda, a safety agenda, an AMR agenda, all separate. We have one agenda for health, for workers and patients. And I'm getting prepared for the uh, World Patient Safety Day coming up next week on the 17th of September. And theme is safe patients, safe health workers. And we're um, very surprised at some of the approaches of colleagues and, and professionals out there that, um, uh, anyways, that see very distinct uh, issues and agendas and kind of pulling these things uh, uh, apart. And at least, um, Ron and Tex, I don't know how you see it from your end, but from my side, I see many, many key partners in the global health infrastructure out there at this point in time, how should we put it, um, looking to profit from the COVID outbreak. And not I don't mean you know materially and in money terms profit, but to think, how can I get ahead by, with the COVID? How can I advance my agenda with COVID? which is just really the wrong way around to to think about this. Um, We have a global problem in front of us. Um, It has only shown the light on some of the, more strongly on some of the things we need to do. And I think it's given us an opportunity to really focus on the issue of sepsis in particular. As someone who's, as I've said before to members of the Alliance, um, whose own Mother passed away from a healthcare-associated infection that progressed to sepsis in one of the best hospitals at the time in New York City. 
uh, I have a personal stake uh, in this and moving the needle on getting more young doctors aware of the problem, um, aware that this will happen to them. They will have that patient that, that uh, goes into a free fall and they need to have tools and uh, approaches and not just individually, but a system approach that can, that can help them. It's something we need to do. And it's not just for uh, sort of low-income, resource-struggling countries. It's also for high-income countries that had many, many, many problems in dealing with this uh, outbreak. Uh, so finally, I guess I'll just say before uh, handing it over to Tex, that really at the conclusion of the spotlight event, um, I'm proud to confirm that uh, our first uh, WHO Global Report on the Epidemiology and Burden of Sepsis has been published this afternoon, and it presents the current knowledge, identifies gaps and future directions in the sepsis research epidemiology. And I'm, I really hope you find the resource uh, helpful to you to move this agenda forward uh, and to advance the work that we put out there in the 2017 World Health Assembly resolution and uh, look forward to the continued partnership with the Alliance and to these continued events. Thanks very much, and I'll, I'll hand it off to Tex. Thank you very much, Ed, and you have crystallized it very well. Um, you have done the hard yards for me. Um, it's really been a pleasure being part of this, and the nine and a half hours have gone very, very quickly. In fact, Ed crystallized it very well when he spoke about sepsis, not as a distinct entity of COVID, a distinct entity, an AMR, as a distinct entity, but um, it's really a societal problem and it's a patient safety problem. And I think of sepsis in terms of it's a social, social socioeconomic disease, it's also a political disease, it's a, a clinical disease, and I think we need to uh, marshal all forces in society, be it uh, clinicians, advocacy, um, um, policy makers, be it also uh, politicians and uh, actors of various form, including uh, philosophers, poets, etc., and the patient and family uh, are really integral in this fight against sepsis. Now, for the past nine and a half hours, we've heard a lot of different speakers, um, those from bedside clinicians, we've heard policymakers, we've heard health ministers, and uh, we've heard different approaches. But the, the thing that uh, struck me throughout this is the talent, passion, and the ability to think beyond the box of uh, sepsis as being a single entity that has really driven this. We know that um, sepsis is a, um, uh, one of the major global threats of the 21st century. And the report that Ed uh, alluded to that will be published this afternoon will show that very starkly. We have also heard about the enormous burden of uh, uh, sepsis. We, know that we heard about the dehumanizing effect of poverty and uh, especially in low and middle income country and resource limited areas. But again, as um, Ed pointed out, and I remind you, this is a problem for us all. Now, and while uh, uh, we think in terms of silos, we've th thought in terms of silos as clinicians, as policymakers, et cetera, I think uh, Abdullah put it uh, quite nicely in that um, there's no room for silos in thinking about sepsis and how we deal with it. Indeed, sepsis goes across nations and one can see the effect of the pandemic, COVID. We saw Ebola, we saw in many other situations, SARS, etc. The international borders are meaningless. In fact, 
um, infectious disease cross international borders very easily. It is sometime our will to work across international borders, our will to help each other that has stymied our uh, really responses um, in many cases and have really prolonged uh, illnesses. Now, um, we have also heard about the devastating effects of uh, other um, uh, non-traditional forms of sepsis. We think of bacterial sepsis, but Ebola and COVID-19. But we also are now learning more and more of the common pathophysiology um, and common approaches to these viral pathogens that um, are inherent in all different ways of treating sepsis. Another major issue um, that was um, addressed within this meeting is the interplay of uh, sepsis and antimicrobial res resistance. And there is a dynamic tension there, and we as a group need to address both. It's not either or. I think um, we heard very clearly that while it poses great challenges, um, a comprehensive and integrated approach to uh, tackling these issues, including early identification, appropriate uh, uh, clinical management of sepsis, as well as the um, ability to utilize uh, um, frugal technology in many areas um, gives rise to optimism and hope in that uh, we can tackle both. It's not either or. Now, I think that, um, again, that many of, many of you have realized um, already uh, being in this um, uh, uh, members of this Congress and thinkers in this for long periods of time having spent your career that um, the issue of uh, major, major uh, uh, global threats require uh, thinking that is non-traditional. And I think that we've heard this much in this conference, the issue of uh, uh, non-traditional thought in bringing all aspects of uh, clinical care, innovation, policy making, advocacy together to really address this problem. Uh, this uh, uh, free online Congress is jointly uh, uh, sponsored by the Global Sepsis Alliance and the World Health Organization. And I would like to really thank both bodies um, for bringing this to fruition. It took a, the uh, uh, considered effort of many individuals to accomplish this. And I'll be remiss if I'm not, uh, if I do not say how grateful I am. And I would like to thank everyone um, for this, uh, bringing this program. While we have seen the final product and the sanitized version, I can assure you that there have been many hours and sleepless nights uh, that have been devoted to this by many individuals. I would also like to thank our program chairs, Dr. Hanan Balkney, Assistant Director General of the WHO, as well as uh, Professor Conrad Reinhardt, President of the Global Sepsis Alliance, who had the foresight and vision to bring this um, um, program together. I'd also like to thank the endorsement societies that have uh, really uh, been uh, very much shoulder-to-shoulder uh, uh, -shoulder with us in many aspects of uh, this care. I am also pleased to say again, as I mentioned before, that these sessions are recorded and will be released for free on YouTube and also as a podcast, an Apple podcast. It will be released weekly on, every, on Tuesdays, starting with the opening session on the 15th of September. And um, you are welcome to, um, to view it one more time. As to the audience, I would like to ex uh, uh, again express my sincere appreciation. I think Ed said it nicely when he said uh, the 
suffering of patients and families. Sometimes it's silent and we do not really um, pay attention to it. But I think that this is a central ethic and all that we are doing is to bring um, the um, issue of patients and families to the fore because at the end of the day, um, what we are here for is to serve. And I think that um, uh, we will continue to do this, but we need families also involved, patients also involved as advocates in um, all aspects of uh, sepsis education, sepsis care, um, etc. cetera. Uh, finally, I would like to encourage all to uh, get involved in the fight against sepsis. As you have heard that in many cases, uh, the public is not um, that aware of sepsis. And I think over time, while we have made inroads through the Global Sepsis Alliance, the UK Sepsis Trust, and um, uh, many of the alliances across the world, I think there's a lot more that needs to be done. The, uh, the ultimate goal would be is to decrease that massive burden of sepsis. And uh, if we can come back at some time to you with the fact that the ultimate burden is markedly decreased and um, also preventable deaths from sepsis are no longer an issue, that would be a victory um, for, for us all. Uh, the vision of the World Health, uh, the vision of the Global Sepsis Alliance, a world free of sepsis, is a worthy pursuit. And we look forward to continuing this pursuit with you, the audience, and all um, the speakers and everyone at the WHO as partners. In these turbulent times, um, uh, we cannot be with each other, and um, uh, but uh, we would continue the dialogue, continue uh, to plan for the next Global Sepsis Alliance con Congress, Sepsis Congress, which will be next year. Um, I urge you all to be safe and be gentle to yourself. And I thank you very much. With this, I'd like to declare this um, uh, 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 sepsis highlight, uh, spotlight close. Thank you. This was the final session of the 2020 WSC Spotlight. Thanks for sticking with us over the last few weeks. And thanks for supporting the Global Sepsis Alliance in its global fight against sepsis. A huge thanks to the World Health Organization for organizing this Congress jointly with us, and thanks to all speakers, chairs, and everybody behind the scenes, especially Alessandro Cassini from the WHO and Marvin Zick from the GSA. The Third World Sepsis Congress is currently planned for April 2021. Once there is more to announce, we will do it on this channel, so feel free to stay subscribed and make sure to check out worldsepsisday.org regularly for news and updates around World Sepsis Day, World Sepsis Congress, and sepsis. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you soon.